Hello and welcome to Built Environment Matters, a monthly podcast brought to you by Bride and Wood, an international company of technologists, designers, architects, engineers and analysts working for a better built environment. Bride and Wood believe in design to value, to cut carbon, drive efficiency, save time, make beautiful places and build a better future. So hello again, and welcome to another episode of Brydenwood's podcast, Built Environment Matters. My name is Jamie Johnston. I'm Head of Global Systems at Brydenwood, and this month I'm joined by Jamie Cressa-Brown, who's a Director in our Creative Technologies team. And we're going to be talking about the role of uh, beyond BIM, digital workflows, computational design, and all things digital. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Jamie. Thanks very much for having me this morning. No, thanks for coming. Um, so first off, can you describe uh, what the Creative Technologies team does at Brydenwood and what's your role within the team? Sure, I can give a, a quick introduction. So I suppose if Brydenwood is focused on design for manufacturing assembly and automated construction, Creative Technologies are focused on uh, automated design. Uh, my role within the team is uh, more focused towards a topic that we call patterns, and that is about understanding um, and documenting the rules behind different systems that we want to automate. So as people may have seen, last year we launched our PRISM uh, residential configurator app. So maybe you can talk about how the team started looking at housing and how the project arose. So housing has been a really big topic for the sector uh, but also a big topic for the government in response to the housing crisis. And the project initiated uh, with the GLA, who wanted to encourage the use of precision manufactured housing, or PMH, which is syn- synonymous for um, modern methods of construction or design for manufacturing assembly. So when you hear me say PMH, I'm referring to those, those methodologies. But they wanted to encourage the use of PMH more broadly uh, across across the city of London, And we wanted to develop a tool to help designers of all kinds better understand precision manufactured housing. Rather than creating documentation, PDFs, describing how to adopt PMH techniques, we wanted to create something that would democratize the knowledge around PMH to the widest possible audience. I want to come back to this because I think this is a really interesting topic, but perhaps you can just describe what the PRISM app does how it's used and what it what it's for. Yes, of course. So rather than this PDF document, we created a free-to-use open source web app that could be used by designers in the broadest sense of the term. So developers, local authorities, housing associations, architects, manufacturers, to very quickly design an apartment building within, let's say, 30 minutes. The app is hosted on a website so it's it's easily accessible um you navigate and go to your site which could be anywhere in london you can explore different data layers around your site to better understand the neighborhood in which you're designing you select the typology of residential development you want to design you enter your user specific brief so your apartment areas and your apartment mix And then you can start to explore different PMH systems. Embedded in the app is a pattern book of apartment layouts that you can also customize. Once you've set your user brief, you can generate your building and you can start to then customize that. Once you're happy with your layout and you're happy with your floor plate, you can assess which precision manufactured housing systems are best suited to your design. 
you can design either with a particular system in mind or you can keep things open and then see which is most appropriate. The whole purpose of this app really is to democratize this know-how around PMH whilst offering uh, huge benefits in time in terms of designing apartment buildings. So that, I think, is, is one of the, uh, I'm not sure people quite understood that when we, when we first launched it, but actually it's, it's at least as much an educational tool. Or I remember some of the early conversations were how, how do we bring that community of designers and the community of manufacturers closer together? Or how do we start to create a uh, more common language that allows a, a, a sort of more fruitful conversation earlier in the design process than might normally happen? Yes, I completely agree with that. I think this was this was all about bringing people people together and people having this common understanding and better knowing what kind of information maybe the other collaborators within a team would need to know. Yeah, the other thing I thought was uh, fascinating. So we didn't just sort of cook up some housing typologies ourselves or or, or get some rules. It was actually based on. Uh, data analysis of thousands of apartments of London in London, so probably more schemes than any individual architect has ever looked at. I suspect it's the sort of biggest um, resi data, data, data set of its time that, that, that's been analysed. Yes, so the app was predicated on, as you say, looking at a broad cross-section of residential development going on in London. And this was in order for us to understand what kinds of typologies of housing were being built, but also looking at areas of apartments and areas of spaces within those apartments to understand how much standardization was really taking place across across that kind of data set. In conjunction with this, what we did was we wanted to map out all of the different typologies that were possible to build. Uh, So the broadest landscape for housing. Uh, So this ranges from individual houses right through to tower blocks. And again, we did this in order to have a common language within which we could start to talk about housing. And then we could identify which specific typologies we wanted to target within the first release of the app, and then maybe the second release of the app, to tie to high-frequency developments that are taking place in London. So what we identified was the majority of housing developments were were central corridor, dual aspect um, apartment buildings. Due to the density requirements of of inner city London sites, if we were to open PRISM up for further adoption across the UK, maybe we would start to target different typologies of housing, maybe housing more more appropriate for suburban or rural settings, such as, you know, terraced houses or, or other typologies. Yeah, and I always really like the idea that it's a sort of open-ended uh, workflow. So as you say, you started with the with the typologies that were most frequent and would have the biggest kind of potential impact on the London market. But actually, as an approach, you could then broaden it, expand it. You could start to put it into other typologies, other, other geographies. So the idea that it was always this more than the proof of concept, but it was never designed to be a kind of finished article, the first version of PRISM. It was a kind of start of a debate. That's definitely the case. And I think in in all of the work that we do, we really try to develop this common language at the beginning of all of our projects and our undertakings so that you can kind of see which which specific bit you want to target first within the wider context of everything else. And developing this sort of framework is a really useful way of uh, sort of scoping the project. Yeah, that's quite an interesting point. You sort of map the whole landscape 
to understand the kind of boundaries before you go, and this is the bit that we should explore first in most detail, but then we can broaden it out, but you get an aerial view maybe of the whole the whole area before you before you start the work. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that's one of the things that maybe specifically I look at within my work relating to patterns within CT is trying to understand the broader sense of what we're doing and then hone in on the specific thing that we we want to target first. So I want to come on and talk about uh, Prism 2, which launched very recently. Perhaps we can talk about um, the launch of Prism 1 and how that was received when it first landed. So there was a lot of excitement around the launch. I think the launch was really well attended by a really great cross-section of people, including manufacturers, developers, uh, local authorities, government members and architects themselves. Um, But since then, we haven't had too much direct feedback on the app I think we wanted to wait between the launch of Prism 1 and then the relaunch of Prism 2 in order to gain feedback from the industry on what they thought was useful and what they thought was maybe needed to be improved in some way. But we didn't get too much of that feedback. I think we have presented Prism in a number of different, a number of different events since the launch. And there's always been this feedback from specifically, I suppose, from the architecture community. Some people are really excited by the prospect of automation and having this kind of technology at their fingertips. But others in the industry are perhaps a little bit less um, infused by it or a bit more threatened by it in some way. And I think that's something that we need to we need to think about and address. Yeah, and it's a yeah. I want to come back onto that because it's quite quite a big topic. One thing I um, uh, thought was interesting. I mean, we, we deliberately described it as a broad but shallow tool, so it didn't develop the design for you, but it had lots of applications. So uh, perhaps you can talk about the ways that different people might use it. So architect versus developer versus contractor maybe would have a slightly different use case of what they think the the prism is for. Yeah, of course. So. If, you, if you're an architect, you would definitely use this tool to learn more about different precision manufactured housing techniques. I think PMH as a topic is, is generally seen as a specialism by architects rather than the starting point for any decision around delivery methodologies. So this was about trying to, to give more arch- architects access to the rules and constraints, but opportunities also around PMH. If you're a local authority or a housing association, you might use PRISM to drive standardization across your estate. So if you have a standard pattern book of apartments, for example, you could tend towards always using those in order to deliver your projects more efficiently and you know then have maybe standardized ma- maintenance regimes, things like that. If you're a developer, I suppose you would use it for a, for a similar for a similar thing to drive standardization across your portfolio. If you're a manufacturer, you might use it to learn more about the types of buildings that architects or your customers are going to design. And equally, if you're a contractor, you would, you could use this tool, you could use Prism to validate designs produced by your architects by effectively rebuilding their work in a very quick, rapid way using something like Prism. So I think we tried to keep the, the use case really broad. Uh, for this and then see how it was being adopted by industry and get feedback from industry in order to, to best develop it further to suit the needs of industry as a whole. 
Yeah, one of the, one of the best ones I heard. Uh, we were presenting the, the the next generation of the workflow at Future Build, and one of the contractors said they would use it to model a scheme they've been given a tender. Uh, see how much variation there was or how many special pods there were for, say, a volumetric modular scheme, rework the scheme and say, I could deliver the same content, but with fewer, less variation and therefore, you know, greater efficiency and therefore lower cost. So I thought that was, we didn't see that one coming, but, you know, when people are starting to play back to you and say, actually, here's what I would use the tool for. I think that's a, you know, fantastic validation that we've done something that was useful that at least uh, started people thinking about how they might use some of these tools. Um, so moving on to Prism 2, uh, obviously at the time, I remember the time of launch of Prism 1, we had a, a wish list of potential future functions between us and Cast, the GLA, and then obviously some of those got, got implemented in Prism 2. Can you talk a bit about what we did next, what we added to Prism 2 to make it, uh, to in, improve the functionality, etc.? Prism 2 was about providing more granular control to the user. So we increased the typologies that were contained within the app. We expanded the pattern book of apartments contained within the app to provide more variation, more options to the user. But we also in- increased control of sort of, yeah, we, you were able to move cores, reposition entrances, things like that to better respond to your site in this version of the app. One of the other huge additions was the introduction of geospatial data layers to give better understanding of the context around your site so you could better understand whether there are specific land classifications, whether you're in a conservation area, for example, the nearby um, transport infrastructure, so you could start to uh, judge whether the density of the development is appropriate, and also things like highways information to start to get you to think about are there going to be any access restrictions during construction? So things like road widths around the site... Is it going to be difficult to get big HGVs to the site, as an example? There's a whole load of ways in which this might expand. So one of the things we've had is interest from internationally to say, well, or could I have a version of it for a different country? Uh, there's still some typologies we haven't included. There's other regions of the UK. Uh, maybe you can think talk about some of the things in which if you had a few, sort of um, or a possible future state, what would you like to do with PRISM if you had the opportunity? So I think we thought that Prism 2 in particular is the first step towards a digital planning approach by aggregating all of these data sets and giving you more insight as to the context within which you're designing. I think one of the other things that would be quite keen to incorporate would be a very early stage embodied carbon assessment of your design based on which precision manufactured housing system you selected Again, to broaden the conversation and open up this topic and to get more people familiar with talking about these kinds of things. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, mean, I, I presented recently and showed some of the very early BIM slides where it showed this kind of data feedback loop of operational data feeding into the front end. But it doesn't happen like that because we don't capture, capture structured data from our assets. Planning is super non-digital. The handover from designers to contractors is... Uh, normally broken by PI and things. So yeah, actually maybe, maybe Prism is the start of that sort of filling in some of those digital gaps maybe that you know you could properly start to get a proper digital workflow, which is something that obviously we've talked about a lot in the office, but um, isn't there yet. One thing that we're definitely not keen on doing in Prism is replicating functionality that exists elsewhere. So as is the case with all of our, our CT projects and our automated design workflows, we're always trying to connect to other things and make sure that we're not 
rebuilding functionality just for the sake of it. So I think we just need to be mindful of how things like Prism then connect to other pieces of software that may be more pr- proprietary that um, you can carry on your design process in in more traditional way. Yeah, that's a really good point that, that Prism was never there to displace any of the existing software or tools or workflows. It was an additional um, tool that architects could have at their, have at their disposal, designers could, could, could use. So it's not there to be a, a threat. It's there to help people do their job. So maybe you can talk about where you think automation should play a, a role in the, the, the workflow. Prism helps with things like rules interpretation. So this is one of the things that architects do repeatedly over and over again for every new project that they start. They get the rules out, whether that be design guides or or building regs or whatever that might be. They reinterpret that and then they design the next building. And what we're trying to do is cut out that reinterpretation part by making those rules much more accessible, much more transparent to designers because really that reinterpretation part is not particularly valuable. It's not the best use of the architect's time. Architects are best able to um, add value in the designing of the places within which we want to live, not reinterpretation of design guides. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, one of the, the mantras we've always talked about is if, if you had that ability to automate things and generate ideas quickly, you'd try more ideas, like you'd try more possible solutions. It would help you develop more ideas quicker and maybe come up with a better solution than you might do manually if you were doing things in a very procedural sort of manual way. Yeah, definitely. I think that's part of the role of automation is is not um, funneling down to a single option quite so quickly, but exploring more options in less time and then making more informed decisions about which is the best option to proceed with. I think if we can start to generate lots and lots of solutions as well uh, and we have lots of metrics which describe those solutions, more people could start to get involved in the conversation about which is the best and most appropriate solution for any particular project or site, rather than, you know, just progressing through a project in a very linear way, resulting in one single solution produced by a single design team. Yeah, and then we have things like the workflow that we we showed at uh, Future Build, which seems like a lifetime ago now because we were doing it live in front of lots and lots of people. Uh, but one step in that is, that is the ability to generate a data model and do loads of simulation. So suddenly, actually, you can test a whole load more different aspects of the design much more rigorously than you can uh, traditionally. Yeah, so if you can save time in the reinterpretation of the rules part of things, you have the opportunity to simulate and, and test your designs much more rigorously to identify which is the best and most appropriate solution. We're just trying to free up more time to do those kinds of activities effectively to make sure that the best possible buildings are delivered. That's what we're all trying to strive for, surely. Yeah, and given the challenge it's set out to face, there is a massive lack of housing. There is a massive lack of social infrastructure. We need to build an awful lot more stuff in the coming decades. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Like These are the sorts of tools that are surely essential moving forwards to allow us to, to do a better job and you know create a built environment that's that's fit for purpose for the future. Definitely. And I think it's really interesting how we've got this sort of slight division within the architectural community or the industry more generally about things like automation and seeing that as a threat to uh, a threat to jobs, because I really don't see it like that. 
we just need to be designing things better and more efficiently because we, we need more infrastructure more generally and automation can help with that, as can standardization. If we're, if we're building buildings in a, in a different way every time, that's surely inefficient. I think one of the other things that these kinds of tools do is they, they open up um, imagination. So sort of a, it's, a, it's a glimpse of what's, what's possible. It's not the end state by any means. Um, you can see a big difference between prison one and prison two as an example. There's a huge amount of development in that process. Uh, but we need to start to attract more diverse people to this industry. And I think this helps with the kind of broader image of the industry in that new technologies are possible and should be part of the future of this industry. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And it, it, yeah, construction's got a famously, I mean, we've, we've seen lots of presentations on it, famously bad uh, image problem. And yeah, there's not enough people coming into construction and, and the, the, the challenges we're facing are only going to get worse if we don't find a way to, to make it interesting to the next generation of digital natives. So yeah, this is a fantastic example of maybe of demonstrating where those uh, people with a kind of interest in tech could do something meaningful to to tackle climate crisis and built environment rather than just go to work for necessarily technology, you know, a pure technology company. I think what we're trying to do is change the process of design through the use and adoption of technology. Um, and I hope that that will be attractive to people outside of the industry and make them want to join this industry. Yeah, so it is, it's, a, it's a huge topic. Um, I always think we, we, we need to start younger and younger to attract people to the industry because by the time they've picked a university course, maybe it's too late for them to have considered architecture. Have you got any thoughts about what the education uh, system needs to do or how we could start to embed some of these things earlier in the process and make people realise that construction has got a, you know, a fantastic future. It's going to be an interesting place to be in the next sort of couple of decades. Most definitely. I think the role of education is key here. So making sure that topics such as automation or, or digital tools and techniques, digital skills, but also the, the role of design for manufacturing assembly and trying to get towards much more standardized uh, designs where we can and where is appropriate should be a key part of, of architectural education uh, and degree courses. Because if you don't introduce those topics early, then I think I said earlier, these types of topics are perceived as specialisms, which I really don't agree that they are. I think they should be fundamental to the way in which we design going forwards. Also, you've seen firsthand, uh, we've showcased some of our apps in a, in a primary school in Hackney. There's a whole generation of Minecraft players who have already got the skills, already got the mindset. Part, mindset. part of our job is to get them to realise they can do that for real in construction, which would be phenomenally exciting for them, I think. Yeah, and it's really it was really exciting going to, and taking um, the seismic app to the to the primary school because they asked the question as to whether or not this is what architects normally do. That's what they thought. They thought, oh, this is this is how architects normally design. And you think, well, if only if only this was the way architects will design. Um, but they were really excited by this process. You, they got really engaged with the the design process and trying to think about how to how to position their spaces and where the entrances to their schools go and where the playground is. They've got that imagination already. So we just need to, we need to give them the tools. Yeah. Attract them in, clear the way and let them, let them loose on these things and see what they do with it. Cause it'll be something phenomenal. I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. I think it's quite it's an interesting one, isn't it? Like you give, give an app to a group of kids and, and they think that this is how the process normally works and you present the same thing to a group of architects and they're threatened by it. 
there's a mismatch here. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, let, let's leave it there. That's a fantastic challenge to uh, leave on. So uh, thanks again for joining me, Jamie. Thanks very much, Jamie. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank you. So thanks again for listening all. Uh, Next month, I'll be joined by Keith Waller, who is the Programme Director for the Construction Innovation Hub, to hear about his journey through government and the transformational shift that uh, government is trying to make in the UK industry, certainly. So um, thanks for listening and join us next time. Thank you for listening to Built Environment Matters, a podcast brought to you by Bryden Wood. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcast, and you can follow Bryden Wood on LinkedIn and Twitter.